first time I've ever been introduced as an expert on spiritual gifts and sex. <laughs> and, and it won't be the last. And, uh, and my wife would be surprised by both designations. <laughs> so just say. So, uh, tonight we're talking about uh, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, right? And uh, whenever you talk about the Holy Spirit, a lot of things come up. Uh, gifts of the Spirit, uh, all kinds of stuff comes up. And I, I just want to say up front that one thing that's unique about ECC is this is a diverse group of people. Um, so, for instance, uh, if you're to walk in there... You, I wouldn't suggest you do this, like take a survey, but if you're to walk in there on Sunday morning and do a survey about people's opinion concerning, let's say, the, the word eternal security, right? You're going to find varying perspectives on that. Some will believe in it, some won't. If you go in there and you ask somebody, uh, what do you think about the gifts of the Spirit? You're going to have varying opinions. Some people are actually going to be what uh, theologically is often called a cessationist, which means the gifts ceased at the end of the apostolic era. Another group of people in the same congregation are going to say, oh no, they didn't. They didn't cease. As a matter of fact, they're alive as well. Let's take it a step further. If you were to walk in Sunday morning and again take the survey and ask all, all, all those people you surveyed whether or not they spoke in tongues, it's likely you would get somebody who would say yes, and it's more than likely you would get a lot of people who would say no, right? So that's the kind of diversity that's at ECC. Um, one of the reasons that I love this place is because of that. Um, I'm not a denominational guy. I've got nothing against denominations. I think they're wonderful, and there's a lot of times I wish I was a pastor in a denomination because it draws some boundaries and also gives reinforcement and gives frankly, some help to pastors. Because honestly, I'm out here all by myself, right? Being an independent church pastor. I got nobody to help me out. Me and Josiah and Dan and John, we're just doing it. And we got a board of elders that could fire us at any time. These guys are a little more insulated than that than I am. Uh, like for instance, this is way more unexpected to say. Uh, but like if, if, if I thought Josiah was doing a horrible job and it was time to get rid of him, I could theoretically get rid of Josiah, but not without the consent of the board of elders, right? That's really However, comforting. I know. <laughs> However, if the board of elders really got irritated with me and thought I was not doing a good job, they could dismiss me, and it says in our Constitution, with or without cause. And I have no recourse at all. It's like, see ya. It's not a leave, right? I got a no bishop, I got a no district superintendent. So it's an interesting place to be. It's an uncertain place to be. It gives you a little bit of uh, queasiness in your stomach from time to time, but I love it. Uh, I don't think I could deal with anything else. I love it this way. And because it's that way, we've got lots of different opinions. And I love the different opinions too. And you know why? Because I'm absolutely confident that just like iron sharpens iron, one brother and sister sharpen another. Or to put it another way, I am so glad you don't agree with me. I really am. And I hope on any given Sunday morning when you're here, you walk away frustrated with something that I said. Because it's called challenge. Right? It's called shaping each other. I don't want to agree with everything you say, and I don't want you to agree with everything I say. I do want us to agree on the basics so we can follow Jesus Christ. But when it comes to particulars, 
There's lots of diversity, and that's the way we are right here. So that's just sort of a setup uh, for who we are. So that could have been an introduction, but I got another one. <laughs> the topic of spiritual gifts, right, especially as it relates to this bigger topic called the Holy Spirit, is always going to be a controversial topic, no matter where you go. Even if you all think alike, it's controversial, because you know that if you all think alike, it's possible that the controversy is us against the world. There's still controversy, if you think you're the only ones that think about it rightly. So it is a, a controversy and difficult topic. Second thing to know about the, the overall doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and this, I think, is critically important, something frequently overlooked when we get into debate. The Spirit according to the scripture, is not a field of force, right? The spirit is not a presence. The spirit is not a feeling. The spirit is not a manifestation. Now, having said that, I'll retract everything I said. It is all of those things. But it's not an it. Okay? The spirit is the second or the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. And God the Father is the first person of the Trinity. There is unity in diversity in the triune God. And the Spirit is not just a field of force. The Spirit is a He, to put it another way. Although, actually, uh, of the three persons of the Trinity, in terms of the language in the Greek, the gender specific for the spirit is female. That's interesting. We'll get into that. But the point is this. The spirit is not a field of force. The spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity. Now, having said that, it's easy for all of us to be guilty of some form of Trinitarian heresy, right? In other words, off kilter, off the mark. And the easiest way for us to be, in some fashion, a heretic in terms of the Trinity is for us to overemphasize one of the three persons of the Trinity, right? For us to overemphasize Jesus, for us to overemphasize the Almighty Father, for us to overemphasize the sweet presence of the Spirit. It's not for us to overemphasize anything, it's for us to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and do our best to make sure that balance is there. So that's something else as a sort of preliminary comment. So um, this is, I hope, not going to be a sermon. I hope it's going to be teaching, because that's what I wanted to be. And Josiah even told me we could do, oh, smokes is already four of up. Told me we could even do Q&A at the end if you guys want to do that. So uh, here we go. Really quick, an overview of the history of the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, as it relates to the church, not, not as it relates to the Old Testament, I'll get to that in a second, but as it relates to the church, an overview of the history of the Holy Spirit, um, and, and frequently associated with charismatic gifts, um, but not always. The point is that at the earliest point in church history, in about the 2nd century AD, we had an emergence in the church called the Montanists, that was just their name, so they, usually it's, it's uh, described, I mean, usually the word is about somebody's name, Areas, area. Um, the Montanists emerged. Now, the Montanists in the second century AD are a group of Christians that 
what most people describe. We don't know exactly what they believe because most of their records are destroyed, so we just have their critics. You know how they go? Okay, so but it seems like the Montanists had an overemphasis, remember I talked about the unbalanced approach, an overemphasis on the Spirit. They were always talking about the Holy Spirit to such an extent that they said that they had special category compared to other Christians. They lived in the Spirit, they spoke in the Spirit, and they prophesied in the Spirit in a way that other people did not. And as a matter of fact, their prophecies in the Spirit, they said, at some level, either eclipsed or added to the written word of God. You can already see how the controversy is going to brew, right? That's how the Montanus controversy begins. But uh, part and parcel of the Montanus controversy actually is the notion of speaking in tongues. Now, why do I say that? Because until the second century, so far as we can tell, there was no group that would have collected around that notion as their primary doctrine. There just wasn't. I mean, people talked about speaking in tongues. Paul talks about speaking in tongues. There was not a group that collected around that primary doctrine. It said, this is our identity. The Montanists were the ones that emerged. The Montanists were declared by the church to be heretics for a variety of reasons. That's just history. Here's another thing. Let's just jump from the 2nd century all the way to the 16th century. That's a huge jump in the history of the church, but let's do it anyway. We're going to jump all the way to Martin Luther. When we think about Martin Luther, we could say a lot about his doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But the easiest way, the most reductionistic way, simplistic way, probably bad way, but i got to do it, to reduce Martin Luther's opinion of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's role is this. Luther seemed to believe that the role of the Holy Spirit was an infusion of love and an infusion of power to struggle against sin. Right? He saw that as the primary role of the Spirit, so when he emphasized the work of the Spirit, he was talking about an infusion with love and an additional sense of readiness and power to fight against the flesh and the devil. Right? That's how... Luther primarily viewed the Spirit and its work. Calvin, for instance, another guy from the Reformation. The Holy Spirit, according to Calvin, primary use or activity of the Holy Spirit, according to Calvin, was that he confirms the Word of God. All right? So, in Calvin, the primary point of the Holy Spirit is to affirm what's written in the Word. The Spirit is always pointing back to the inspired Word and revealing truth to the believers that comes from the Word. Advance on a little bit more. Uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but I will. Any of you from a sort of Methodist background? I happen to be. Right? Okay? Any Methodist background, the primary founder of Methodism is John Wesley. Right? Now, the Methodist Church doesn't reflect many of the things that John Wesley believed any longer, but one of the primary things that John Wesley believed that marked him off from the rest of the Christian tradition was what he called a second work of grace. Wesley actually believed that the Holy Spirit's primary influence in the life of the believer was to anoint the believer, and that anointing was often called sanctification. That in some measure, you were purified by divine love when the Spirit came upon you. Okay? Now, what you will notice so far, except for the Montanists, I've said nothing about the baptism of the Spirit that you now think of as the charismatic tradition. And again, I'm not being critical, I'm just speaking historically. It didn't happen until the 19th century. Not as a movement. 
except for the Montanists. All this period of time in the history of the church, the so-called charismatic or Pentecostal tradition didn't exist. It, it's a minority opinion in the history of the church, not a minority opinion among contemporary Christians, but certainly in the history of the church, it's a minority opinion. Uh, in the 19th century, it was the Pentecostal movement actually spun out of the so-called Methodist holiness movement, right? It wasn't its independent self. It kind of came from John Wesley's idea, even though John Wesley wouldn't have endorsed it, of the anointing of the Spirit, but it just took it in a new direction. And the anointing of the Spirit was distinctively what you might call, again, a second work of grace or a second blessing or an infusion by the Spirit into a believer who already trusted Christ. A new kind of thing. You know, put it however you want. That was the point. It's a new kind of thing that happens in the life of the believer. And associated with this new kind of thing that happens in the life of the believer it are the ecstatic gifts, primarily speaking in tongues and often healing and a variety of other things, but primarily speaking in tongues, right? That's kind of the linchpin for, for the Pentecostal charismatic movement. That took off dramatically uh, at the turn of the 1920th century. But then uh, along the way, I, I was in California in the, in the 80s, and this was about, oh, 10 years old at the time. There, there was a huge uh, explosion of interest in the charismatic movement that came from a, uh, a church plant out there by a man called Chuck Smith. I don't know if any of you have heard of Chuck Smith. I think he's passed on now. Uh, Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith. And it was in the 70s, and it exploded. And the multiple demonstrations of the power of the Spirit among them, speaking in tongues and a variety of other things, was remarkable. I mean, it's the kind of thing that was on the national news, right? It was that kind of phenomenon. Uh, that also propelled the charismatic movement. And today, the charismatic movement is large and continues to grow. And as a matter of fact, according to the stats that I know, the charismatic movement grows fastest and has grown fastest in Latin America and in Africa. In, in those countries or continents, okay? Um, so that's the so-called charismatic movement, which really blossoms and comes into its fullness around the 19th century. Now there's the history, okay? Let's talk about the Bible for a minute, because uh, that's pretty important, right? Um, the Bible, what does this say about the Spirit? In the Old Testament, we have a variety of things said about the Spirit. As early as the second verse of the first chapter of the Bible, we have a reference to the Spirit. Some people would say it's not a reference to the third person of the Trinity that I actually think it is. Spirit of God moved on the waters. And, and all these references that, to, to we and that kind of thing. And, and, and that seems to imply, it's implicit, not explicit, the divine Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We later learn the theologians in the first century look back and say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are active in creation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are active everywhere. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are active. Right? In, in all things. So you see the work of the Spirit early on there. You also see the work of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, in the leaders that are anointed in the nation of Israel. You see it in Moses, you see it in Aaron, you see it in the prophets, Elijah, and all those people. They're said to be, in some measure, set apart and anointed by the Spirit for a special purpose. You also see the Spirit of God leading the people through the desert, through the wilderness. It was a cloud by day, and it was a pillar of fire by night. Again, a reference to the Spirit of God. Or, as we in the New Testament era now say, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So you have those references in the Old Testament. But primarily, primarily, the references to God's Spirit being poured out on individuals 
relates to particular leaders, not to everybody. Okay? It's, it's sometimes leaders that have a little uh, sully past. I mean, like King Saul, the spirit of God was poured out upon him. And Saul wasn't a really outstanding individual. He wasn't he was kind of a bad guy <laughs> in a lot of ways. And this happened not because he was good, but because the spirit chose to pour himself out on Saul. So you know, I'm talking about Old Testament Saul. That's what I was talking about this morning when we were here. So the spirit in the Old Testament can be seen there. What about the spirit's role uh, in the New Testament and beyond? Um, one of the first places we begin to understand what the Spirit's role is, is in the teachings of Jesus. Very appropriate, right? And so if you go to John chapter 14 and 16, a little bit of 15, but those two places, you hear this unfolding revelation concerning what the Spirit is going to do, and that the Spirit is coming. And basically Jesus says, I'm about to leave, and I'm going to leave behind the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to do the work that I've been doing. The work of the Father. You see the sequence? <laughs> Christ comes and speaks concerning the Father and points to the Father and does the work of the Father. Jesus leaves the earth and the Spirit comes behind and points to Jesus and the work of the Spirit and the work of the Father. There's this divine diversity and unity going on. All members of the Trinity pointing to the other. They're never pointing to themselves. You never see Jesus pointing to himself. He's pointing to the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son. He doesn't point to himself. Should tell us something about our use of the Spirit, right? If we use the Spirit to point to ourselves, or if our use of the Spirit, whatever the use of the Spirit is we're talking about, is self-centered, probably the wrong direction to go. So the Spirit, according to um, Jesus, is coming, and He's going to reveal the work of the Son. He's going to glorify the Son and the Father. He's going to call to remembrance for the disciples things they've forgotten because Jesus talked about a lot of things, said a lot of things, and the disciples, under the inspiration of the Scripture, uh, inspiration of the Spirit, are going to give us the Scripture. That's what happens when the Spirit comes upon them. But Jesus also says that the Spirit is the convictor or prosecutor of the world, right? Uh, he also says that the Spirit is the advocate for the believer. So you've got prosecutor and defense attorney all in the same metaphor, right? And for the believer, he's the defense attorney. For the world, he's the prosecutor. And also it's said by Jesus that the Spirit is going to guide the believers into all truth. In other words, illuminate the truth of what Jesus said and what it was all about. Here's some other things that are said by the Spirit in the New Testament, uh, primarily from Paul. The Spirit confirms that we're children of God. That's often referred to as assurance. In other words, when you confess Jesus Christ to be your Lord and you follow him, there is a certain indwelling assurance that comes from the Spirit that you are a child of God. And your spirit cries out to God, Abba Father. So the Spirit confirms that we're children of God. The Spirit is said to be a seal or a deposit a seal or a deposit of our redemption. That, that's an interesting image, isn't it? Uh, fascinating. We go into that. We, I just resist here. Um, the Spirit also is said uh, to help us or intercede for us in our weaknesses. Take a look at Romans uh, 8, 26 and following. It's a powerful passage about how the Spirit actually utters words that we cannot utter when we're under duress. Right? The Spirit prays for us. Um, it's also said that the Spirit is um, 
is the sanctifier of the people of God. He saves and he sanctifies, purifies the people of God. The Spirit is said to dwell in the church. Uh, now that, of course, doesn't mean the building. It means the body of believers. When the body of believers are gathered together, the Spirit's presence is here. And I would argue, and I think the Scriptures suggest, in a different way than when you're in your normal. There's something different going on. Because you're not the body of Christ. You're a member of the body of Christ. You might be a hand, you might be a foot, but you're not the body. It's when you're in the context of other believers that the fullness of the Spirit dwells among those believers. Uh, that's the argument Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. It's the body of Christ. It's not about individuals. Um, so let's just move on to, to the, the next thing, which is the one that creates uh, the controversy. Um, the Spirit gives gifts for the body of Christ. The gifts of the Spirit. Now, instead of, of me saying uh, exactly what I think, which I'm apt to do and probably will do anyway, I want to read... Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, okay? Just, just hear it and get it in Now, about spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. And then he goes on to talk about pagans and how things are. And then he says this in verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. Right? So that means the source of the gift is the spirit. Duh. Yeah, but it is. Different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service. But the same Lord, they're different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now, to each one is the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Can I read that again? Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given, not for you, but for others. That's a paraphrase. Bob's paraphrase, but I think it's accurate. To one, there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by the same means of the same Spirit. To another, the faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. To still another, interpretation of those tongues. All of these are the work of one and the same Spirit. He gives to each one just as he determines. Okay? In other words, I can't earn the gift of knowledge. That doesn't mean I don't have knowledge. Because, again, remember, it's the same Spirit for all believers. I've got knowledge. But I can't demand the special gift of knowledge. Because it's God who determines whether or not I'm going to have that. Um, there, there's, one, there's one thing that... Uh, no, there's been... The, the one thing is one of the most harmful things in the, in the body of Christ. It's when believers think they have a gift that they don't. Right? And they demand to use a gift that doesn't exist. And, and as the leader of the church, you want to say, my dear brother or sister, you haven't got it. And it sounds like that's a, a really demeaning thing to say, but it's not. You, you have not been given the gift of teaching. I'm just telling you, you can't do it. It just it doesn't work. You can't stand up in front of a bunch of people and teach. Nobody listens. 
Right? That sounds harsh, doesn't it? It's not harsh. It, it's like trying to force a square peg into a round hole. And if I were to, I, if I were to say to that person, don't you listen to all those naysayers who say you can't do it. You go do it because you can do anything you want to do. I'm speaking absolutely secular words. Okay? Because some people are gifted to teach in the body of Christ and others are not. That same person who's not gifted to teach in the body of Christ may have the gift of healing. Because I want to tell you something. I don't. Okay? That same person who doesn't have the gift to teach may have the gift of mercy. And I want to tell you something, I don't. Now, I hope that I'm merciful because that's reflecting the character of God. But it's not me. It's just not. I, I'm, I'm kind of a hard-driving leader. And my first inclination is not to have mercy and be sweet. It's just, ask my wife. I struggle with it, right? And, and the Spirit of God shapes me. But I know full well my primary gift is not to get the mercy. So I can't pretend like it is. And I can't pretend like I ought to be put in a mercy role and lead the mercy charge. Because I'm not going to do it. So that's on the side. But you see in the gift list, and this is in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, there's this long list of gifts. Now you won't find the identical gifts in each passage, though most of them are repeated. And it leads us to believe that the gifts that are listed are not exhaustive. I think most people would agree with that. The gifts that are there, Paul just says, okay, let's think about this for a minute, right? There's a lot of gifts in your church. I know those gifts, and he lists some of them. And he says those are the gifts of the Spirit. What he doesn't say is those are the only gifts of the Spirit. There are other gifts of the Spirit. And uh, they're evident among the body of Christ. Now, um, what's the point of all those gifts? The primary thing. It's one thing. And one thing only. For others. You have a gift? You may be blessed by it. Uh, maybe the blessing that accompanies your gift is a very close, mysterious, mystical, intimate, presence of the Spirit. Thank God for it. But it's not for me. It's for the benefit of others. Well, of course it's for you. But that's not the main point. The main point is it's for others. Do you have the gift of prophecy? Well, that's kind of obvious, right? What good is prophecy if you don't prophesy? <coughs> but it's not for you. It's for others. Do you have the gift of leadership? It's not for you. And here, let's just do this. It's not for you to create your own kind of kingdom or your own kind of world or do something that makes you great. That's not the point. The point is to serve. So every one of the gifts, go down the list, are all for the other. Here's another thing that's interesting about the gifts of the Spirit. Paul doesn't say... I want you to seek out this one, and this one, and this one, and if you get that one, it's a bonus. He says, God designates the gifts. He gives the gifts. You don't choose. Um, so, let me say something about me, okay? 
in my view, uh, the gifts of the Spirit. This is not the church, because the church doesn't have a position of the gifts of the Spirit. The position is, there are many positions. And as long as they're orthodox, you're welcome to embrace them in the body of Christ at this point. However, I am not what some people call cessations. In other words, I don't think that the gifts came to an end at the end of the apostolic age. So that puts me in the category of a person who actually believes the gift of tongues exists. Okay? It puts me in the category of a person who actually believes the gift of prophecy exists. And the gift of healing. Go down with it. I don't care what the gift it is, I believe it still exists. Does that mean that I should seek the gift of tongues? I don't think so. Again, take a look at the scripture. The gifts are designated, delivered, given by God. If I have the gift of tongues, wonderful. What's the purpose for it? The body of Christ. If I have the gift of tongues, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I have the gift of knowledge, of wisdom, what's the purpose of it? For the body of Christ. Let me add one more thing. What's the check and balance against my gift? The body of Christ. That's why in 1 Corinthians, when Paul's having trouble in 2 Corinthians, a lot of places, having trouble with the, the gifts of the Spirit, the ecstatic gifts, he talks about control mechanisms. And I'll just reduce it to this. This is what Paul says. Paul says, you better allow the body of Christ to govern your gift. If you go independent, you're not a part of the body of Christ. You're only a foot, you're only a hand, you're not the head. Right? So, whenever it's time for a person, in my opinion, to express their gift of prophecy or their gift of tongues, it must be constrained by the body of Christ. Because you cannot constrain yourself. You can only experience a reality. You must have your brother and sister in Christ to help you understand the purpose of whatever gift it is that you have. Um, so when you come on Sunday morning, um, you will notice that nobody speaks in tongues. Right? You haven't seen that. I've been here for a few years. You haven't seen it happen yet. Um, and it's likely it will never happen. Why? Because I, I'm speaking personally. I don't think it's possible to control the ecstatic expression, namely tongue speaking, the 700 people in one place. Now you may say, that's wrong. I get it. I understand. You, you and I can disagree about that. i got a lot of brothers in Christ that disagree with me on that. But I think the principle that Paul lays down in the New Testament is controlling of the people with ecstatic gifts in the context of the body of Christ. And every other but especially those he's speaking about. Right? And he basically says, if somebody's going to speak in tongues, there must be an interpreter. And that interpreter must be able to interpret. In other words, you got two gifts going on here. One the speaking in tongues, one the interpretation of tongues. Those are two different gifts, according to Paul. You may have both, but they're two different gifts. And Paul says, you can't do this in the body of Christ unless you've got an interpreter. And why does he say it? Because everybody's going to think you're crazy. That's basically what he says. If they walk in and they see everybody blabbering around and saying things that nobody can understand and there's no coherence to the whole thing. There's no singular message. There's no interpretation. The world's going to think you're freaking crazy. 
That's what he said. So what is the control mechanism? I don't think the control mechanism is set in stone for every generation or for every particular place. Why? Because every generation and every particular place is different. So I advance ahead to today with us. And I say if somebody has the ecstatic experience, the gift of tongues, it's not appropriate for them to prophesy or to speak in tongues out loud in a congregational worship service where nobody is equipped to interpret, and especially when there's so many people there who would just walk into confusion. It doesn't edify the body of Christ. Are there other ways for that to edify the body of Christ? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's in the size of a group like this or even smaller. Why? Because when you look at what Paul said, he was talking about a control mechanism in a house church. I don't think the control mechanism that Paul necessarily articulates in that context works for 700 people. I think, honestly, if Paul were here and he said, you've got a church worshiping 1,500 people, I want you to have multiple interpreters for multiple expressions of tongues, I think he would say, no, that will never work. It's chaos. You can be done in a small group, but don't do it in a large group. How are you going to keep up with all that stuff? Right? What Paul did make clear is that he spoke in tongues. He said, more than any of you. In other words, I have a gift when I speak in tongues. And I never want to demean or speak negatively about a person who has a gift of tongues because I actually believe in it. I don't have it. I don't want to speak negatively or in a condescending way about a person who has the gift of healing. I believe in it. But I don't have it. God may choose to heal through me, but I'm telling you guys, it's not my gift. God may choose to exercise mercy through me, but it's not my gift. There's all kinds of things like that, right? The whole emphasis is this. Everybody has his or her own part, and it's all for the other. You know what I think is fascinating about 1 Corinthians 12? It's followed up by 1 Corinthians 13. What's 1 Corinthians 13 say? Though I speak with the tongue of men and the angels, and have not love, I ain't worth crap. That's what it says. Though I have the gift of prophecy, and can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and fathom everything, I'm worthless, unless I have love. It goes on and on and on, and then it always says, if you don't have love, it's not worth anything. Right? So that's actually what I believe Paul means at the end of chapter 12 when he says, pursue the most important gifts. Faith over love. Um, because they're gifts of the Spirit too. They're not on the earth, but they're certainly gifts of the Spirit. So there you go, and it's already way past. Sorry. You uh, gave me a big topic, dude. I did. Yeah. So we, why don't we say, um, if you want to chat with Bob as we have dinner here in a few minutes, that would be awesome. Also, Bob is going to be in the IMU Starbucks tomorrow from 1 to 3. If anything came up that you'd want to chat about, Otherwise, you can send me an email or Bob an email, and we would love to grab coffee and talk about any of this stuff anytime. So please get in touch. Um, otherwise, band, why don't you all go ahead and come forward? Uh, and as they're getting in position, Bob's going to pray for us. Okay. Lord, thank you for uh, your church, for the spirit that uh, really gave birth to your church on the day of Pentecost. And I don't think it exploded on the scene of human history and changed the world. And 
We're pretty small and insignificant as individuals, but we're mighty in the power of the Spirit with your church. But we pray you will help us to remember that we're not lone rangers, that we're united in the body of Christ, and that every gift we have is a gift for the other, so that we can edify the body of Christ. Because in a few years, Lord, maybe you're I'm going to be dead, and the church is going to go on. And further out, everybody in this room is going to be dead, and the church is going to go on. So the only thing we have within our capacity to do that has eternal consequences is to invest in the body of Christ, not ourselves, but the body of Christ. So help us to do it. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.